Chapter 45 of the Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 1, by William Cowper Brand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by William Jones. Chapter 45 Trilby and the Trilbyites Apotheosizing the Prostitute. The Trilby craze has overrun the land like the grip bacillus or the seven-year locust. Here in America it has become almost as disgusting as the plague of lice sent upon Egypt to eat the chilled steel veneering off the heart of Pharaoh the Fickle. Everything is Trilby. We have Trilby bonnets and bonbons, poses and plays, dresses and drinks. Trilby sermons have been preached from prominent pulpits, and the periodicals from penny post to pretentious magazine have Trilbyismus and have it bad. One would think that the world had just found salvation, so loud and unctuous is its hosanna, that Trilby was some new Kaaba stone or greater palladium floated down from heaven on the wings of Dumarier's transcendent genius, that after waiting and watching for six thousand or million years, a perfect exemplar has been bequeathed to the world. I have read Dumarier's foolish little book as a disagreeable duty. The lot of the critic is an unenviable one. He must read everything, even such insufferable rot as Coyne's Financial School, and those literary nightmares turned loose in rejoinder, verbal Rosinantes, each bearing a chop-logic Don Quixote with pasteboard helmet and windmill spear. I knew by the press comments, I've already surmised from its popularity with upper tendom, that Trilby was simply a highly spiced story of female frailty. Hence I approached it with long teeth, like a politician eating crow or a country boy absorbing his first glass of lager beer. I had received a surfeit of the chameleon style of literature in my youth, before I learned with Ecclesiastes the preacher, or even with Parkhurst, that all is vanity. So far as my experience goes, the only story of a fallen woman that was worth the writing and reading is that of Mary Magdalene, and it is not French. Her affairs d'amour appear to have ended with her repentance. She did not try to marry a duke, elevate the stage, or break into swell society. After closing her maison de joie, she ceased to be bonne camarade et bonne ville in the tough-de-tough quarter of the Judean metropolis. There were no more strolls on the battery by moonlight alone. Love, after exchanging her silken robe de chambre for an old-fashioned nightgown with never a ruffle, when she applied the soft pedal, the bacchic revel became a silent prayer. So far as we can gather, the cultured gentlemen of Judea did not fall over each other in a frantic effort to ensnare her with Hyman's noose. If the apostles recommended her life to the ladies of their congregation as worthy emulation, the stenographer must have been nodding worse than Homer. If the elite of Jerusalem named their daughters for her and made her the subject of public discussion, that fact has been forgotten. And yet it is reasonably certain that she was beautiful, even more beautiful than Trilby, the bones of whose face were so attractive, 
the pink of whose tootsie wootsies so irresistible the magdalen of st luke appears to have been in many respects the superior of the magdalen of dumaurier she does not appear to have been an ignorant and coarse-grained she-gammon who frequented the students quarters of the sacred city posing to strolling artists for the altogether being in the crowded atelier like mother eve in eden naked and not ashamed we may suppose that the sensuous blood of the orient ran riot in her veins that she was swept into the fierce maelstrom by love and passion and would have perished there but for the infinite pity of our lord who cast out the seven devils that lurked within her heart like harpies in a grecian temple and still the storm that beat like sulphurous waves of fire within her snowy breast and behold a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that jesus sat at meat in the pharisee's house brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment how stale flat and unprofitable the modern stories of semi-repentant prostitutes beside that pathetic passage which shears down into the very soul penetrates to the profoundest depths of the sacred lake of tears and yet this ultra-orthodox age which would suppress the iconoclast if it could for poking fun at paul parrot preachers has not become crazed over mary magdalene has not so much as named a canal-boat or cocktail for her du maurier says of his heroine with her it was lightly come and lightly go and never come back again sheer gaiety of heart and genial good fellowship the difficulty of saying nay to earnest pleading so little did she know of love's heartaches and raptures and torments and clingings and jealousies etc a woman who had never been in love yet confessed to criminal intimacy with three men and was not yet at the end of her string not even the pride of dress the scourge of need the fire-whips of passion to urge her on she sinned as the yankees would say simply to be a doin broke the seventh commandment more in a frolicsome spirit of camaraderie than anything else that's the way we used to kill people in texas still i opine that when a young woman gets so awfully jolly that she distributes her favors around promiscuously just to put people in good humor she's a shaky piece of furniture to make a fad of a doubtful example to be recommended from the pulpit to america's young daughters the french enthusiasts once crowned a courtesan in notre dame as goddess of reason and worshipped her but i was hardly prepared to see the american people enthrone another as goddess of respectability and become hysterical in their devotion i am no he prude i have probably said as many kindly things of fallen womanhood as du maurier himself but i dislike to see a rotten drab deified i dislike to see a great publishing-house like that of harper and brothers so indifferent to decency so careless of moral consequences that for the sake of gain it will turn loose upon this land the foul liaisons of the french capital i dislike to see the mothers of the next generation of americans trying to make up to resemble the counterfeit presentiment of a brazen bawd 
it indicates that our entire social system is sadly in need of fumigation, such as Sodom and Gomorrah received. Trilby, the child of a bummy preacher and a bastard barmaid, was born and bred in the slum of the wickedest city in the world. Little was to be expected of such birth and breeding. We are not surprised that she regards fornication as but a venial fault, like cigarette-smoking, and sins capriciously, desultorily, more in frolicsome spirit of camaraderie than anything else. Girls so reared are apt to be a trifle frolicsome. We are not shocked to see her stripped stark naked in Carol's atelier in the presence of half a hundred hoodlums in the Latin Quarter, seeming as unconcerned as a society belle at opera or ball with half her back exposed, her bust ready to spill itself out of her corsades if she chanced to stoop. We even feel that it is in perfect accord with the eternal fitness of things when these wild sprouts of Bohemia, with kindly solicitude, help her on with her clothes. We can even pause to admire the experienced skill with which they put each garment in its proper place and deftly button it that she should have the ribald slang of the free and easy neighbourhood at her tongue's end, and be destitute of delicacy as a young cow might be expected. But we are hardly prepared to see one grown-up among such surroundings so utterly stupid as not to know when her companions are guying her. Trilby croaking Ben Bolt for the edification of Les Trois Anglichés were a sight worthy of a lunatic asylum, it was even more ridiculous than the social performance of that other half-wit little Billy in Carol's atelier. Stupidity covers even more sins than charity, hence we should not judge Dumoyer's heroine too harshly, as weak intellects yield readily to hypnotic power. Svengali had an easy victim. I have no word of criticism for the poor creature. I do not blame Dumoyer for drawing her as he found or imagined her, nor can I blame popular preachers, able editors, and half-wit women for worshipping the freckled and faulty grisette as a goddess. For does not Carlyle truly tell us that what we see and cannot see over is good as infinity? Still I cannot entertain an exalted opinion of either the intelligence or morals of a people who will place such a character on a pedestal and prostrate themselves before it. I confess my surprise at the phenomenal popularity of the book among people familiar with Dickens, Scott, and Thackeray. Triune transcended the fiction. I had hoped when Ben-Hur made its great hit that the golden age of flash fiction was past, that it could henceforward count among its patrons only stable boys and scullions. But the same nation that received Ben-Hur with tears of thankfulness, thankfulness for a priceless jewel of spotless purity, ablaze with the immortal fire of genius, has gone mad with joy over a dirty tale of baudry that might have been better told by a cheap reporter bordering on the jim-jams. Has the American nation suddenly declined into intellectual dotage, reached the bald head and dizzy sobrette finale, in the mighty drama of life? I can account for the success of Dumarier's book only on the hypothesis that like takes to like, that the world is full of frail trilbies and half-baked duffers 
like little Billy, who Narcissus-like worship their own image. They don't mind the contradictions and absurdities with which the book abounds. In fact, those who read up-to-date French novels are seldom gifted with sufficient continuity of thought to detect contradictions if they appear two pages apart. The bulk is ultra-bizarre, a thin intellectual soup served in grotesque, even impossible dishes, and highly flavored with vulgar animalism, just the mental pablum craved by those whose culture is artificial, mentality weak, and morals mere matter of form. The plot was evidently loaded to scatter. It is about as probable as Jack in the Beanstalk, and has worked out with the skill of a country editor trying to cover a national convention. The story affords about as much food for thought as one of Talmage's plate-matter sermons, is fully as fillin' as drinking the froth out of a pop-bottle, and equally as exhilarating. Like other sots, the more the literary bacchanal drinks, the more he thirsts, appetite increased by what it feeds upon. We can forgive Byron and Boccaccio the lax morals of their productions because of their literary excellence, just as we wink at the little social lapses of Sarah Bernhardt because of her unapproachable genius. But Du Maurier's book is wholly bad. It could only have been made worse by being made bigger. It is a moral crime, a literary abortion. The style is faulty and the narrative marred, if a bad egg can be spoiled, by slaying logged in from the slums of two continents with evident labor. Employed naturally, slang may serve, in a pinch, for attic salt, but slang for its own sake is smut on the nose instead of a beauty spot on the cheek of Venus, sure evidence of a paucity of ideas. A trite proverb, a non-translatable phrase from a foreign tongue, may be permissible, but the writer who jumbles two languages together indiscriminately is but a pedantic prig. It were bad enough if Du Maurier mixed good English with better French, but he employs in his bilingual book the very worst of both obsolete American provincialisms, and the patois of the quarter Latin side by side. To the cultured American who knows only the English of Lindley Murray and scholastic French, the book is about as intelligible as Greek to Casca, or the dog Latin of the American schoolboy to Julius Caesar. His characters resemble the distorted freaks of nature in a dime museum. They may all be possible, but not one of them is probable. Taffy and Gecko are the best of the lot. The first is a big, good-natured Englishman who wants to see his sweetheart married to his friend, weds another, and supports her quite handsomely by painting pictures he cannot sell. The latter, a Pole with an Italian's temperament, yet who sees the woman he loves in the power of a demon, by whom she is presumably debauched and makes no effort to rescue her. He's not even jealous. Svengali is the greatest musician in the world, yet cannot make a living in Paris the modern home of art. He is altogether and irretrievably bad, despite the harmony in which his soul is steeped. Think of a hawk out-warbling a nightingale, of a demon flooding the world with melody most divine. 
we may now expect Mephistopheles to warble nearer my God to thee between the acts. Trilby can sing no more than a burrow. Like the useful animal, she has plenty of voice, and like him she can knock the horns off the moon with it, or send it on a hot chase after the receding ghost of Hamlet's sire, but she is tone-deaf, can't tell Ophelia's plate from the performance of Thomas's orchestra. Svengali hypnotizes her, and beneath his magic spell she becomes the greatest contratiste in Europe. Hypnotism is a power, but little understood. So we must permit Dumarier to make such Jules Verne excursions into that unknown realm as may please him. Had Svengali made a contortionist of the stiff old Devonshire vicar, we could not cry impossible. The laird of Cockpen is a good-natured fellow to whom Trilby tells her troubles instead of pouring them into the capacious ear of a policeman. He is a kind of bewhiskered Sir Galahad who goes in quest of Trilby instead of the Holy Grail, and having found her, sits down on her bed and cheers her up while she kisses and caresses him. As she is in love with his friend, the performance is eminently proper, quite platonic. The laird advises Trilby to give up sitting for the altogether, yet Dumarier assures us that nothing is so chaste as nudity, that Venus herself, as she drops her garments and steps onto the model throne, leaves behind her on the floor every weapon by which she can pierce to the grosser passions of men. He informs us that a naked woman is such a fright that Don Juan himself were fain to hide his eyes in sorrow and disenchantment and fly to other climes. How thankful Cupid must be that he was born blind! Still, the most of us are willing to risk one eye on the average altogether model. Dumayet, who is somewhat better artist than author, illustrates his own book. He gives us several portraits of Trilby, all open-mouthed, with a vacant stare. Strange that he did not draw his heroine nude as she sat on the bed, hucking and kissing the laird, that he did not hang up on the floor every weapon by which Venus herself can pierce to the grosser passions of men. But perchance he was afraid the laird would hide his eyes in sorrow and disenchantment and fly to other climes. He could not be spared just yet. Despite his plea for the nude, I think he exercised excellent judgment in leaving Trilby clothed and in her right mind, such as it was, while the laird roosted on her couch in that attic bedroom and was, to us a Tennysonianism, mouthed and mumbled. Even New York's four hundred might have felt a little squeamish at seeing this pair of platonic turtle-doves hid away in an obscure corner of naughty Paris in purest naturalibus, even if there is nothing so chaste as nudity. Dumouriez says that Trilby never sat to him for the altogether, and adds, I would soon have asked the Queen of Spain to let me paint her legs. If nudity be so chaste, and Trilby didn't mind the exposure even a little bit, why should he hesitate? And why should he not paint the legs of the Queen of Spain, or even the underpinnings of the Queen of Hawaii, as well as her arms? But if we pause to point out all the absurd contradictions in this flake of ultra-French froth, we shall wear out more than one pencil. Little Billy is a very nice young man who has been kept too close to his mother's apron-strings for his own good. 
a girlish, hysterical kind of boy who should have been given spoon victuals and put to bed early. Of course he wants to marry Trilby, for he is of that age when the swish of a petticoat makes us seasick. She is perfectly willing to become his mistress, although she had repented of her sins and been forgiven, but just a few days before. She has sense enough, despite Dumouriez's portraits of her, to know that she is unworthy to become a gentleman's wife, to be mated with a he-virgin like little Billy, but she is over-persuaded as usual, and consents. When the young calf's mother comes on the scene and asks her to spare her little pansy blossom, not to blight his life with the frost of her follies, and of course she consents again. She's the great consenter, always in the hands of friends, like an American politician. The difficulty of saying nay to earnest pleading prevents a mesalliance. Trilby skips the tra-la, and little Billy, who has no chance to secure a reconsideration, cries himself sick, but recovers, comes up smiling like a cotton patch after a spring shower. He is taken to England, but fails to find that absence makes the heart grow fonder. He gets wedded to his art quite prettily, and even thinks of turning Mormon and taking the vicar's daughter for a second bride, but slips up on an atheistical orange peel. Something has gone wrong with his head. Where his bump of amativeness should stick out like a walnut, there is a discouraging depression which alarms him greatly, and worries the reader not a little. But finally he sees Trilby again, and the wheel in his head, which has stuck fast for five years, begins to whiz around like the internal economy of an alarm clock, or a sky terrier with a clothespin on his tail. Of course, there is nothing now for Trilby to do but to die. They could be paired off in a kind of morganatic marriage, but it is customary in novels where the heroine has been too frolicsome for her to get comfortably buried instead of happily married, and perhaps it is just as well. Even a French novelist must make some little mock concessions to the orthodox belief that the wages of sin is death. So Trilby sinks into the grave with a song like the dying swan, and little Billy follows suit, upsets the entire Christian religion by dying very peaceably as an atheist, without so much as a shudder on the brink of that outer darkness where there is supposed to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Svengali has also fallen by the wayside. A number of characters have been very happily forgotten, so the story drags along to the close on three not very attractive legs, Taffy, the Laird, and Gecko. It is a bad drama, worse staged, with an ignorant bawd for a heroine, a weak little thing for a leading man, an impossible caliban for the heavy villain, and atheism for a moral. Such is the wonderful work that has given this alleged land of intelligence a case of literary mania a potu, set it to singing the praises of a grimy grisette more meloniously than she warbled. Miranton, Mirantain, at the bidding of the villainous Svengali. Such is this new line of literature who has set American maids and matrons to paddling about home barefoot and posing in public with open mouths, flattering themselves that they resemble a female whom they would scald 
if she ventured into their backyard. End of chapter 45 Trilby and the Trilbyites <laughs>